You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Dr. Zoran Radish. Um, he's a scientist that's exploring um, the use of Russian nerve agent uh, using a tool from a company called Nanome that lets you uh, in 3D look at molecules and explore them, turn them, you know, uh, perhaps let them interact with other molecules and uh, super interesting. So, uh, Dr. Radish, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me... Um, why uh why look into uh nerve gas what how did this whole project uh start well uh quite a few researchers around the world are uh looking into toxicity of uh nerve uh, uh agents uh, warfare agents some of them are gases some of them are uh, more in the liquid state uh, in order to to find a good uh uh, antidotes uh, to treat people exposed to, to nerve gases. Uh, one has to mention that uh, the same uh, family of chemical compounds uh, uh, are also uh, organophosphorus pesticides that are used in uh, every day in uh, crop protection. So. Uh, uh, Finding antidotes against nerve gases uh, means antidotes uh, against uh, uh, intoxication of uh, people who work in agriculture and use those organophosphates. Now, one would mm. could ask why use so uh, toxic uh, family of compounds for uh, uh, crop protection. Uh, the answer is simple. They're not quite as hazardous as nerve agents because they are not uh, as volatile and uh, uh, exposure hazard is not so high. Uh, on the other hand, they uh, biodegrade uh, quite efficiently. Just water, rain will degrade them, so that's the reason. Now, um, uh, uh, these uh, nerve gases has been topic of research uh, for a while, actually, uh, ever since they were first made in uh, Germany, Nazi Germany. And... Um, uh, it is, uh, 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 they are all targeting uh, primarily 
uh, one enzyme that is key enzyme in uh, neuro cholinergic neurotransmission, acetylcholinesterase. So what they do, both nerve gases and organophosphide, they uh, covalently attach. So they form a stable uh, uh, link bond to a protein, this enzyme, and, uh, and uh, disable normal uh, neurotransmission, normal um, control of our thoughts, of our movements, and uh, typically acute um, symptom of intoxication. And the reason why uh, are they, uh, those compounds so toxic is uh, disabling diaphragm. Uh, to of, 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 uh, that controls uh, uh, our lungs work. Uh, their normal um, it, it's normal function, and uh, people uh, uh, die from um, uh, from uh, from from um, suffocation. That's uh, now so horrible. Uh, yes. Now, uh, why is it not simple? to find a good antidote against that kind of compounds, it is that uh, there are quite a few of them and they are all uh, have slightly different chemical structure. Once they bind with this, their target, with this enzyme, acetylcholinesterase, uh, they generate uh, slightly structurally different entities. So uh, when we look at uh, uh, structure, based design that is commonly used in uh, design of new uh, drugs uh, in general, uh, then there is typically a target biological macromolecule that is used, the structure of uh, uh, which is used to, to the antidote or a, a, a biologically active molecule that will, a drug that will control this um, molecule. Um, in, in this case, uh, uh, four or five different uh, nerve agents will generate five different uh, targets. And so it, it is difficult to design a single antidote that will be effective against different um, uh, warfare agents. Now, so even for classical warfare agents like VX, Taboon, Sarin, Suman, uh, it is still a challenge worldwide to uh, to design a really effective uh, small antidote, molecule antidote that will act in minutes and uh, be able to recover activity of this enzyme that is really, really critical uh, for our life, maintaining life. Now, uh, when we come to novichoks, this new class of, comp of uh, nerve agents, actually they have been uh, included in the list or uh, uh, so OPCW decided, uh, recommended their inclusion in the list of the warfare agents. So um, they are a particularly uh, uh, hazardous because of specific uh, properties uh, that captures uh, and we can talk more about that, but uh, so that there is another level of challenge that is uh, uh, now uh, created by uh, inclusion of this new class of agents. A quick question: How fast do the most lethal uh, nerve gas agents work? How long would someone have to administer an antidote if there was one? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, 
uh, uh, as I mentioned, they their uh, liquids. Um, uh, and so now I'm talking about classical nerve agents. Uh, their uh, vapor pressure differs, and uh, because some of them have a really high vapor pressure, like sarin, uh, they actually ev uh, evaporate so so efficiently that they uh, are uh, uh, poisonous as a gas. That's why they're called nerve gases. Uh, sarin, uh, soman. Uh, to some extent taboon, uh, but VX is, for example, uh, more of an aerosol. When it is weaponized, it is not a gas, it is aerosol. So gases will act quickly, uh, and, and uh, scenar exposure scenarios are quite different for different uh, for those different nerve agents. Um, uh, sarin, and that's what we have seen in the uh, case of uh, Tokyo subway poisoning, uh, where in enclosed uh, uh, spaces like subway uh, uh, cars and and uh, the whole system, uh, where where gas has stay for a little longer time, then exposure is more efficient. So there there was number of people that were poisoned there because um, it was a gas. Um, then uh, th that compound gets into um, people through uh, lungs, and uh, uh, either uh, exposure through uh, aerial pathways, or in case of VX, where it is a largely um, where people are largely skin, some through lungs also because it is uh, aerosol that is formed. Then uh, the poison ends up in blood. Uh, and from blood, uh, it is uh, distributed to tissues, to brain, to fragment. And because all those compounds are uh, neutral, they don't have a charge, they distribute through biological membranes very quickly, in minutes. And uh, uh, depending on uh, level, of, uh, depending on where exposed person is located, if it is if person is located at the really uh, uh, ground zero, at the place where uh, um, uh, gas or uh, this uh, agent was released, exposure will be very quick and it will be very difficult to save that person. Because uh, once um, we find the exposed person, uh, we have to act in minutes also. And uh, it was uh, within several minutes that uh, uh, it is critical to inject antidote uh, uh, that uh, have been exposed most severely. Uh, frequently, there is no way to save them. However, um, uh, it is always a whole range of uh, victims that uh, are exposed at different levels. As one moves from ground zero to wider radius, there will be uh, victims that uh, received uh, lower doses, and then they will be uh, easier to treat. So the the really uh, how fast one gets uh, with antidote to those uh, exposed is critical, but it's minutes. Well, what would an antidote now, look like? Um, is it are all the antidotes? I mean, are you looking just at antidotes, or is there any preventative thing that you could breathe, for instance, that would um, 
you know, that would protect yes. you against being exposed to it. Yeah, there are different approaches in uh, in treatment of those uh, exposed to to this kind of poisons. Um, uh, definitely, antidotes are the only uh, real. Uh, um, that's the only real help in those uh, uh, because we are talking about uh, small molecules that are chemically reactive and uh, that will find this inhibited enzyme and uh, break bond between. Uh, nerve agent and enzyme and uh, allow enzyme to reinstate its normal function. Now, um, the the other approach, so th this is uh, a limitation of antidotes that one has to act quickly, inject, uh, um, if possible, intramuscularly or even better, intravene. It's very difficult in field scenario. And uh, then uh, that antidote has to reach inhibited enzyme and uh, recover at least fraction of its activity in order to maintain normal or uh, at least some fraction of uh, cholinormal cholinergic uh, activity to to uh, save a person. The, uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, pretreatment. Yes, there is yeah. uh, uh, a way to. Pre Three. Uh, now we are talking about scenario where either we are trying to save those people who have not been exposed, but there is imminent danger of exposure, then uh, they could be given also intravenously, intramuscularly. Also, there is some there are some experiments that uh, show efficacy of that. Uh, uh, larger protein molecules that will bind uh, nerve agent in blood as a sponge. Now, there are different, so basically one has to inject that into potentially um, uh, people who, are, uh, who could be potentially exposed so that there is a, a additional molecule circulating in their blood that will capture um, that will capture this nerve agent. And also there are some approaches where this uh, molecule is biologically active and will degrade the nerve agent. So those are all approaches that are under investigation and current active research. However, disadvantage of any kind of uh, uh, pretreatment uh, strategy is that one has to no, expect uh, uh, that uh, exposure will be coming. Um, this cannot be this, um, uh, more less effective uh, uh, for uh, saving people who have been exposed already. Even though it, it they could be effective even there, and uh, that's in cases where. Uh, uh, individuals are exposed to large doses, then uh, mm -hmm. large doses of, of uh, uh, poisons like this uh, um, can remain in uh, from blood. Uh, they diffuse into fat tissue, into, uh, into uh, 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 tissue where there is no target. They will not inhibit anything, but they will stay there. And then 
slowly diffuse back into blood and and, pre, uh, and present uh, a danger over longer time. So, so in that case, yes, one could uh, uh, reduce uh, the secondary toxicity coming from nerve agents that uh, was hiding in those depots uh, uh, in within our uh, organism and uh, uh, neutralize that one. But uh, uh, in order to save person and reinstate actual activity of this enzyme that is target, we need antidote, which is chemically reactive. Those are antidotes that we called, uh, most of them are group uh, family of compounds. Is there a trade-off between the toxicity of you know, a nerve agent and um, how high a dose you can get? Because let's say um, a nerve agent is really, really, really toxic. That would mean to me that you'd only be exposed to a small amount before you would, you know, stop breathing and being able to breathe in more of it, which would therefore yeah. limit your exposure. Is there anything, yeah. uh, any trade-off like that? Like this? Yeah, well, th this is an interesting question because uh, now, um, uh, we have different nerve agents that are uh, that have nominally different toxicity, for example. But they're not uh, not all of them are equally hazardous. So uh, uh, let me give you an example. Sarin uh, is not the most toxic nerve agent. It is VX, but VX is not as volatile. And so unless um, and, and so a person can move around in area. Uh, uh, contaminated with uh, VX and not get exposed, while uh, area contaminated with sarin will almost certainly expose uh, individual because it is uh, 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 vapors that a person will uh, breathe in. So um, uh, even though some of them are not as poisonous because of ease of exposure, uh, they are more hazardous. That's why sarin was used probably more than any other nerve agent so far has been used uh, because of ease of exposure of a larger number of people. Now, novichoks uh, uh, now come as a third uh, class of compounds, nerve agents in that uh, uh, context because they are least volatile and uh, they are stable, they can be produced and uh, are stable as solids. And uh, uh, that opens entirely a different uh, um, um, uh, way of their use, strategy of their use. That's why they are uh, more suitable uh, terrorists uh, in terrorist attacks where they're not released instantaneously, but where individuals, not mass, it's not, they're not directed to mass uh, exposure. They're more directed to, towards individual exposure oh. because one can uh, put, uh, leave a little bit of powder on a doorknob, on uh, 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 things that, uh, that, uh, Targeted individual will most likely touch, handle, and then get okay. exposed. Huh. When um, 
when people are, are are people in any condition to even administer an antidote to themselves when they're affected, or are they so incapacitated so quickly that they couldn't even help themselves if they wanted to? Most likely, those uh, individuals who uh, uh, happen to to land themselves at ground zero, uh, where exposure levels are significant, and that's uh, uh, most likely with sarin or some kind of volatile nerve agent, uh, they will um, be most likely incapacitated and and, uh, won't be able to help themselves. uh, the the uh, civilian population uh, has no way of helping themselves anyway because uh, uh, there is no uh, nothing if uh, that we carry around where we would be able to help ourselves. Uh, soldiers, on the other hand, have uh, kits mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then they can inject themselves with. Uh, antidotes, auto-injectors, but even soldiers uh, uh, that have been exposed directly uh, at, uh, to, uh, and uh, received high levels probably will not be able. So um, uh, those that are able to function to extent to inject, to use auto-injector, they, they will be able to help. So a civilian population will uh, rely on somebody else to come and the rest of it. Okay. Um, so what's your best bet? I mean, if there's so many different types of toxins and they act differently, I mean, how do you form a defense to this? If it's so easy to, uh, you know, to hurt someone with these things and, and sicken them, I mean, how could anyone defend themselves? How do you know, how do you make a, um, you know, an antidote that could uh, counteract so many different kinds of toxins? Yes. Well, that's really a challenging uh, um challenging uh, undertaking. Uh, we start at molecular level. So, yeah. So, um, uh, the question that you asked is uh, really a challenging um, um, a project. Uh, the, what we do is in, in trying to design something that will be efficient and, of course, uh, in in situation like uh, in, uh, that, in, in case of uh, exposure of a large population, uh, we don't know which what agent is used. So that, that that makes it really important that whatever we use will have some efficacy, will uh, work with several at least different agents. So we start at molecular level. We uh, have a, um, a structure of our target molecule. We have a structure of uh, nerve agents. We know how their conjugates uh, look like. Conjugates meaning once they incapacitate this enzyme, we know what it looks like. Uh, and uh, then based on uh, that structure, we try to find small molecule that will fit area in the targeted enzyme, disabled enzyme, and uh, uh, where the antidote will be able to insert its reactive, um, a reactive uh, warhead, <laughs> let's call it that way, the part of molecule that will then break a critical bond and uh, 
recover activity of inhibited enzymes. So uh, when we find at that molecular level that one particular small molecule is able to cover that activity uh, from several different conjugates, several uh, enzymes that uh, have been incapacitated by several different nerve agents, then we move on to next level, and that is um, uh, ex vivo studies, so studies where we include uh, not only pure molecules of our enzyme, but also environment where this enzyme is located, and uh, eventually go to in vivo studies in mice where we uh, try to uh, rescue uh, mice that have been exposed with nerve agents, with uh, our antidotes, and uh, those are all different levels of research uh, where at the end we uh, come up with, uh, with a small molecule uh, experimental antidote that has uh, good uh, or not so good, uh, so there's whole spectrum of uh, efficacies uh, against uh, different nerve agents. Uh, of course, uh, uh, in order to be able to do that, one has to have access to either actual nerve agents in order to form conjugates with enzyme or expose animals, or uh, use anti uh, analogs uh, that are not hazardous but can create structure of conjugates, intoxicated enzyme that is identical to conjugates. Uh, chemically identical in, uh, uh, to uh, inhibitor enzymes. So uh, that's typically the way uh, we study those. And I can say that uh, um, we have just, uh, we are actually in the middle of uh, studying one particular class of antidotes that, unlike any other, uh, is to adopt the structure of small molecule uh, of that small molecule uh, to a structure not only steric structure but also electronic distribution uh, of the targeted enzyme and has uh, we hope it, it will have a better ability to adopt itself to a target to this poisonous enzyme and be more effective in treating wider range of different intoxications uh somansarium dx uh taboo could you have any, um, um, could you have any, uh, is there any way to to quickly analyze various gases or aerosols using um you know, like an analysis module that would be strapped let's say to the wrist or the chest of a of a soldier where it could look and see okay out of thousands of compounds, we identified this one, and then you know the person could choose. Okay, take this antidote. Would that be a way yes. to uh, to prevent people? Yes, uh, the, the um, uh, armies around the world uh, have been using um, different ways to identify actual uh, nature of the threats and uh, older. Uh, uh, there were different kinds of detectors that would either change color uh, or somehow indicate what is the likely uh, um, offending agent. Um, more, uh, de more developed, technologically developed uh, sensors 
use more sophisticated uh, technology. And yes, that's a really good way to uh, narrow down uh, um, threats. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the diversity of chemical diversity of, 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 uh, of these poisonous molecules. However, I'm not aware really uh, of, uh, of a sufficiently efficient detection system that could be decisively helpful in narrowing down to only one. Uh, fast enough so that first responders can rely on that detection. Yes, there are different detection systems, and yes, uh, all those systems are helpful. They rely on uh, chromatographic technology mainly now. Uh, but um, in most of this uh, detection takes uh, more time than it's necessary to, I mean, than we have in order to react and save individuals. So uh, first responders that come typically at this time of development of all this technology, uh, they, they have to rely on uh, uh, antidotes that they have. They can't really make the st- decision, uh, at least uh, in treating uh, people who are have been instantaneously exposed now for something that could be coming in hours, then one could use. Uh, detection system to identify children. Oh, so there's no way that you know of to do a fast detection or fast enough within a minute or two. I I don't believe that such ex, such system with as much as I mentioned that could be used to to uh, uh, decide with uh, sufficient com- for one to, for first responder to be confident confident that uh, it will be only one. So that's why still it is uh, important to um, to have antidotes of wide, broader uh, specificity, not just targeting one uh, um, of uh, offending agent, but uh, several. But that's where we come with um, uh, developing antidotes and small molecules. So, and that's where we uh we uh, are finding that uh, any investigation of uh, structural properties of this inhibited um, biological molecule this enzyme are uh, is very useful and uh, uh, technology that nanom is developing so this uh, virtual reality is uh, really helpful in terms of uh, uh providing uh instantaneous immersive information about uh, the way uh, this uh, disabled uh, protein molecule, this enzyme, looks and what small molecules of uh, experiment would look like in order to be able to uh, react and um, um, rescue this enzyme. So, um, in terms of developing antidotes, that technology is uh, uh, really important. Yeah. What? Uh, quick question about nanom. So it helps you visualize these molecules in 3D. But what, why is that helpful? How does that help you to uh, you know to figure out? I mean, can you can you not test chemically for certain things, but by visualizing the molecules that helps you? 
Yes. Uh, well, um, the value, uh, this now uh, boils down to to question of value of uh, uh, molecular, macromolecular visualization. Um, so imagine um, uh, image of a, a biological molecule printed um, in a piece of paper in two-dimensional format. That that uh, could be analogous to looking at uh, a sculpture, artistic sculpture, a photograph of artistic sculpture. Now, you, when you if if you really want to enjoy uh, art, uh, sculpture, uh, you you have to be able to uh, walk around it and look at it from all sides in order to understand. Uh, what artists wanted to create in that case. That's similar with a molecule. In order to understand a macromolecule, large molecule, one has to uh, view it from all sides, not just from front or back. And uh, uh, technology that allows that is virtual reality. Uh, they're uh, stereoscopic uh, 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 visualization uh, technique that allows one to walk around, to uh, zoom in, to go into molecule uh, where one can not only see cavities and uh, uh, indentations and places where uh, small molecules can interact, uh, but also distribution of charge and uh, uh, potential for combined uh, interactions. So it is uh, uh, observer is now uh, the researcher is now allowed to use uh, uh, the naturally developed um, senses. Um, uh, to investigate something that is uh, microscopic normally. And how many molecules can be visualized and can they interact in the VR environment? You know, what's the limitations of it? Uh, uh, that, that is a good question. Uh, it is, there's probably some limitation. However, I can tell you that um, the molecules of the biological molecules that I study and those are molecules that uh, uh, contain about let's say uh, up to 10,000 atoms so yeah. imagine having uh, 10 of those molecules 10 times 10,000 atoms and I can move them around independently all at the same time so that is quite a large number of points in uh, three-dimensional space that uh, uh, hardware has to be able to keep track on and very quickly because otherwise technology will cause some noise. Uh, and, uh, so uh, whenever uh, uh, observer, whenever individual moves he head or changes position, walks around, then everything has to be updated. Of course, that is uh, uh, limited also by hardware, but uh, fortunately, to some extent, uh, graphics cards and uh, hardware manufacturers uh, trying to create as better and better uh, 
platforms for gaming industry. That's what's uh, uh, interesting. We move, uh, um, uh, providing uh, uh, motivation for for development of hardware. That's also extremely helpful for science because uh, creating hardware that can uh, uh, display a smooth uh, surfaces, uh, um, a large number of polygons, uh, in, uh, use large number of polygons to, to create objects static. Uh, then that also increases uh, efficiency in uh, displaying molecules and number of atoms that you can see and displaying biological surfaces of those molecules. So uh, Currently, uh, hardware graphics cards and uh, uh, CPUs uh, that are uh, fairly inexpensive and used, uh, one could say, almost in every home, uh, are capable of running software that not only work, uh, creates and uh, um, one can uh, visualize. Uh, molecules and manipulate them, multiple molecules, and uh, uh, create actually new molecules and uh, calculate interaction between small molecules and large molecules and do quite a few things in virtual reality. And the way the molecules bend and move and interact, that's pre-programmed in, so they, they emulate what actually is possible in reality? Yes, so that is a real the critical issue when we talk about science, uh, when we talk about hardware and gaming, all that is uh, artificial, right? So uh, content is created uh, as artistic rendering. In science, we really uh, need uh, experimental data to analyze. and. Uh, uh, content that is visualized by nano software uh, for scientific purposes is experimental uh, data. So uh, all those 10,000 atoms that I mentioned before uh, have been uh, determined experimentally, their exact relative position in three-dimensional space. So when one a file containing one of uh, those large molecules, then uh, Position of all atoms is something that was previously determined experimentally, and that's where uh, uh, reality comes. And also, different techniques will allow uh, time resolution of molecular structures. So, for example, nuclear magnetic resonance is sometimes used to do that. So, one can uh, see uh, uh, the uh, experiment. The, the scientists who do uh, who resolve that kind of structures will resolve an ensemble of structures, 20 structures, 30 structures of particular molecule, and then using nanom we can display them either simultaneously or in uh, 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 as as a motion, uh, and we can create motion and uh, subsequently display one set, another set, another set, so that uh, we actually can create movie of motion of molecule. And uh, that's also really important. And uh, it happens that this molecule that uh, I'm studying, we have uh, uh, a 
quite a few issues with uh, trying to understand its flexibility and ability of of this uh, molecule to adopt uh, shape that will allow different ligands, including nerve agents as poisons, to bind to their uh, active center. The active center is placed that is defining uh, biological activity of molecule, in this case enzyme, and it happens in this case that it is located right in the center of, of, of about 20 angstrom radius uh, uh, sphere, spherical molecule. So there is a narrow channel that leads to that uh, center and exactly flexibility of molecule, of sh uh, movements of atoms that are uh, fueled only by a thermal energy of solution. So there's nothing chemical here that needs to be consumed in order to provide energy for the movement. It's simply uh, uh, oscillations and structure that become critical for uh, properties of those molecules. And we can see that in VR. We can see that. Okay. All right. Very good. So what, uh, last question or so, what, what do you think is the uh, near-term future for um, you know, counteracting these nerve agents, is it uh, hopeful or is it just a real difficult arms race? What's uh, what's your impression? Uh, I didn't get the last uh, connection is not really good. What do you think? The will last be part of the question. Yeah, over the next few years, I mean, do you feel like this the um, the nerve agents versus the antidotes is a very difficult arms race? Or you know, are scientists winning, yes. or is this going to get worse and worse? No, uh, I think uh, scientists are winning in general. However, not so often uh, uh, we uh, come to a situation um, that we are experiencing now, actually, where uh, something new comes, a new kind of uh, offending agent, new kind of nerve agent, and that's these novichoks come into play. That, now, that... Uh, this is where uh, scientists still have to win. So uh, the battle is really uphill battle right now, but I'm sure I'm confident that uh, the, we will win. And uh, the reason, one of reasons for, for this uh, difficult situation is that uh, uh, we are not, the, and now when I say we, then I, I mean academic researchers uh, around the world are not really confident about what those novichoks are. That's, that's uh, a, a little bit of a uh, uh, mis, uh, mysterious issue, uh, even though uh, with time, and actually the situation now is much better than 12 months ago, um, uh, we uh, there it hasn't been risk, uh, uh, confirmed officially yet. What is the structure of uh, Novichoks that was used in England in UK last year? So we we don't have official release to a public or to a scientific that would say this and this chemical compound has been used. We can conclude, and that was uh, part of my research with uh, VR also, that uh, able using VR, virtual reality, to narrow down possible candidates for these 
on offending agents and uh, actually conclude on most likely ones. And uh, so that's, we know, we really need to know what they are by chemical structure in order to be able to, uh, to uh, counteract them. And because they are, that class of compounds is so hazardous that uh, it is not realistic to expect that anyone outside of uh, specialized government laboratories will be able to have access to them to study them. So for now, we really would benefit from having information and from being able to use uh, in silico approach, uh, computational and visualization techniques to study those structures so that we can uh, create based on those uh, properties, structural properties, uh, potential antidotes. Okay, well, very good. Well, Dr. Reddish, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, you know, it's scary, but I, I'm glad people like you are working on ways to, uh, you know, to fight back against this stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.